Yeah. Uh, also, if you if you are not in a gospel community but would like to still pray for the building and or well for the people who are in the, not the building itself, right? But for the people who are going to come and stuff like uh, Sherry Kynert, who she's not in a gospel community, but she has volunteered to be here on Wednesday nights at six o'clock. And if you would like to show up and pray, she's going to be here, and you can show up and pray with them. And and maybe at some point you'll connect in the gospel community. You guys will pray there. But if you're not, it's a good place now to come and pray for the future of element and kind of what's going going on six o'clock wednesday night Wednesday night. she's going to be here like she says she's committed she's here all the time so there's that so welcome to element if you're newer there are bibles in the back if you don't own one you can have one if you forgot one you can use one there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room they look like this on the inside you'll get some notes that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about as well as some questions to go deeper if you have a smartphone you can download an app it is called Version, or i think you just type in bible it's probably the first one that comes up it's the most downloaded bible app but you open that and you click on more and then events and we will come up by gps in your smartphone and you'll get sermon notes versus questions announcements all that goes along with today's message my name is aaron i'm one of the pastors here i want you to stand with me for the reading of god's word uh, this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. And it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who can lay everything open and bare before you. Uh, that we would trust you enough and your authority as you speak into our lives and that we would honor you in how we live and worship and love others and love you. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, We are doing a 15-week series on the authority of Jesus. And I know if if you've never been to a church before, that sounds like a given for a church, or it sounds like something you'd say, like a TV preacher say, like, God has the authority in your life. Something like that, right? It's, it's more than catchphrases. I think it's very practical because how you see Jesus in his authority is going to completely relate to how you begin to live your life. And so it's, what we're looking at is looking at Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. This comes right after a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most often quoted sermon that Jesus ever gave. Uh, at the end of this sermon, people were amazed at his authority because he taught in a way that wasn't like any other scribes. So Matthew 8 and 9 comes along and Matthew will give you 14 different ways that Jesus shows he has the authority to say what he did, to do what he does. And so, so far we have seen him have authority over sicknesses, very various different kinds, over calling disciples, over nature and calming a storm, uh, over spiritual forces and, and demons, but don't don't think the get out of the house Hollywood kind of demons. Okay, don't think of stuff like that. Biblical stuff. Uh, today we're going to see that Jesus has authority over the forgiveness of sins, which is something only God could do. We're actually hit Matthew chapter nine today. So wow, seven weeks in, ninth chapter. That also tells you you got eight more weeks of chapter nine. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine. Uh, put a place mark there after you get to Matthew nine, and then flip over to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter 2. This is a section we actually dealt with right before the end of the year last year. Uh, And it's going to sound a little bit like review to some of you, the first part, but it's going to be a good review. But I'm going to do a different approach in the middle with the same landing point. So if this was gymnastics, I have just raised my degree of difficulty. You can all hold up signs at the end and beat all one. (laughs) 
That was not a good one. So uh, last year when we did, it, we did this, we dealt with it in the midst of looking at this guy's friends who brought him to Jesus, the community around this paralyzed guy, uh, because the story in Mark kind of focuses on that a little bit. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, I think this is important, so we're going to start here and then move into the Matthew thing. Now, if, if you are someone in this culture who was paralyzed, your entire world is basically relegated to something that was three feet by six feet. You live on a mat, and that's all that your world is. Someone has to feed you. Someone has to carry you when you got to go somewhere. Someone has to clothe you. Someone has to move you so you don't get covered in bed sores. Someone has to clean you when you pee or when you poop. Someone has to wash you. If this happens to you later in life, you probably think of all the the independence that you have lost, all the humility and vulnerability you feel like because other people have to do this for you. You probably feel like you're losing your self-dignity. I told my wife that the day that I can no longer wipe my own self and take care of my own business, she's supposed to take me out to the forest and just let me go walking. Just... Just leave me out there and, 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 and I'll be okay. And she says, like, no, that's so prideful. And I'm like, well, yeah, it is. The devil got kicked out of heaven for it and you let me go walking in the woods. That's what's going to happen. But I cringe at the idea of someone having to deal with all of my waste. The great reformer Martin Luther believed that he was closest to God while he was sitting on the toilet because there was no place that he felt more vulnerable, more uh, could be humiliated if somebody walked in. And this is kind of the idea of where we're going to go a little bit, not poop, but the idea of this vulnerability in the midst of this. In this culture, there is no, no surgeries, no rehab, no treatment, no government programs, no American with Disabilities Act. Uh, you cannot, in essence, contribute to society, and so you have to go through life as a beggar. Imagine that as you. Do you dream about being healthy? I mean, at night, when you actually have dreams, do you dream you're running or walking or getting married or even working a job? Does your head, like, sometimes I dream that I'm flying. I mean, it's like, awesome. And then I wake up and I'm like, dang it. I'm I'm not flying. This This is horrible. But every day when you wake up and you're this guy, you see the ceiling. You see that same ceiling every single day. And your body is a prison cell. You're on a mat that's the extent of your world. And Mark 2, the whole story is going to take place because of these guys' friends. They bring him to Jesus to be healed and forgiven, though not in that order. Think about you. If that is you, would your greatest wish be to be healed? It would be, right? Oh, my goodness. You guys are like, uh, I don't know. How many wishes do I get? Can I wish for more wishes? You get one. Okay. For, seriously, you guys are like dead. You're like... For a paralyzed guy like this, friendships are not going to happen by accident. Whoever these guys were that took him to Jesus, they had to overcome social obstacles and social boundaries and inconvenience. They're giving up their time and their effort and their energy to be friends with this guy. Uh, psychologist Alan McGinnis says that the only way to have true friendships is you have to assign top priority to your friendships. In today's world, we devote our time to all kinds of things that are not our relationships with God and others. Then we wonder why our relationships aren't deep and fulfilling. Because we we never spend any time on them. Like, I don't really feel like God talks to me. Well, do you pray? No. Do you read the Bible? No. Okay. I, I, really? Or I don't have deep, meaningful friendships. Do you spend time with anybody? No. I, you, you, there's something in there. You have to sign top priority to it. The average American watches four hours of TV a day. 
That is three to four times the amount of time we spend talking to someone in our family. Dolores Curran did communication exercises about a decade ago, and she said the two most common phrases in households were, what's on and move. Wow, right? Right? Think about Facebook. People now doing studies on Facebook are showing that people are confusing friendly people with friendships. And they are not the same thing. You go down to buy a car from a car salesman, that dude will be your buddy. He will be nice to you. He will call you, oh man, you're just the greatest. And then you buy the car and they never want to see you again. But Facebook, if you have friends and you post every stupid thing on Facebook and all your friends are like, yeah, like, that's the best. You're the greatest. Those are not true friends. True friends are the ones who call you up and be like, why in the world do you say this garbage? Why in the world? What is wrong with you? And you're like, oh, I hate you. True friends. Okay, true friends, right there. Friendships make you vulnerable enough to hear the hard things. So if you're paralyzed, you're probably a guy who starts to wonder how your friends see you and all of your neediness. And so you're looking like, and this shows, I think, in order for you to have true friendships, you have to be that vulnerable. We spend so much of our lives trying to act like we have it all together, we don't need any help, we're, we're okay, because we don't want to be this vulnerable. Because if you become this vulnerable with somebody, that means somebody else could actually hurt you. Because they know enough about you. And that's the gift of real friendships. Whenever people love and serve each other in the face of weakness and need and that vulnerability, that's where two friendships take place. So in your sermon notes, I start off with these four questions. Who do you show your weaknesses and struggles to? Who do you ask to pray for you? Who do you let see your brokenness? And who helps you understand hope? Because if you want a real friendship, you can't always be the strong one. And this is what brings these people, I think, together around this guy's weakness because it's so visible. And, um, and, I, and I think in the back of my mind, so how I see it, that it, it makes all of them more honest. And in the Mark's account, you see that Jesus is teaching in, in this house, and, and they break through the roof to drop this guy down in the middle of where Jesus is teaching. And I, and I was going to ask, can you imagine if that happened here? But you would say yes, because if the roof fell apart here, you'd be like, well, that's normal, because it's element. That's just but, so these guys, they get their friend to Jesus, Mark 2, 5, and it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus will usually say things like, when your, uh, your faith has healed you, but here he sees the faith of these friends. Now, flip back open to Matthew chapter 9. Have this idea of vulnerability in the back of your mind, because I think it's going to relate directly to struggles and sin and where Jesus goes with it. Matthew's gospel takes this account, and you'll see a little focus on the friends, but you will fo- he focuses more on the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. And that's really important, because today a lot of people will tell you they can do a lot of things for you, whether it's get you a better home loan or fix your marriage or teach you how to sing, whatever. But no one has authority to forgive sins except God alone. And whether the guy on the mat realized it or not before going to see Jesus, this is what he really needed. This place about getting vulnerable enough to say, yes, my deepest need is my sin. So Matthew 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, that's Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And Mark, it tells you that was Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority 
to men. So you see, Matthew keeps coming back to this idea of authority. It still says when Jesus saw their faith, but the whole focus comes back to the idea of Jesus' authority. Jesus says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he say that in in the midst of all this? What I mean by that is if you are the guy on the mat you probably do not expect to have your sins talked about in front of all of these people. That is probably not your deepest desire at this moment. And if you're like me, and I don't think I'm that weird, but when I read this story, if you're you're like me and I'm on the guy on the mat, I would be like, well, uh, thanks, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. That's great. But I think everybody in the room, and maybe everybody's ever going to read this story, it seems to realize that's not what I'm here for. I am here because I'm paralyzed, and I would like to be healed from being paralyzed. That's my more immediate problem, right? Right? Do you ever read the story and think, what? Man, you guys are so dead. Okay, so if you go to Jesus, you'd be like, okay, that's great. No, you're like, I want to be able to walk. That's my problem right now. I want to walk. And what Jesus kind of says to this guy is, you don't know what your problem is. That's not your most immediate problem. Everybody's biggest problem is sin. See, the people who bring the guy to Jesus, no, nobody in the story, in the text, is talking about guilt or sin or forgiveness. Only Jesus does. I think Jesus says to him and to us, you think you know the main problem in your life, and you don't, and you don't. Jesus knows that we all have problems. I'm not saying he doesn't see our practical, everyday needs. And eventually he will heal this guy. But from the standpoint of the gospel, we got to realize that as we see the world around us, the main problem in a person's life is not their suffering, it's their sin. That's what he's talking about. We, we do these things at Element called redemption groups. And you probably hear us talk about it every once in a while. But at the end of redemption groups, our goal in this is to help people change their understanding of the gospel and redemption. Because it's not about focusing on what's been done to you or what you've done to others or how these things worked out in your life. It's the whole idea that we have all responded in the wrong way to the gospel, that we don't really understand redemption and grace and God's goodness and love and kindness. When we do see the world through that, everything changes. It's very empowering when you understand the truth. When we only look for blessings and healings, we are not going deep enough. Almost everyone in the world who was paralyzed would want with every fiber of their being to walk. It is only natural. But walking is never going to save your soul. It's not going to save your soul. It will never bring redemption. This guy might be thinking deep down in his heart, if only I could walk, well, then my life would be all right. I would have everything together. I'd never be unhappy. I'd never complain. I'd never be discontent. Everything would be good. And Jesus says, no, my son, you are mistaken. And some people think that sounds kind of harsh. But let me ask you, uh, almost every single one of you or all of you walked in here this morning, right? On your own power, two feet, right? You walked in. Okay, simply by walking, does that make your life content and happy? Do you never have anything to complain about? Right, you're a bunch of whiners. I heard it. I know. Okay, I get it. I get it. See, once again, Jesus is right because Jesus is always right. I mean, this is like for us. We, we all think if I just had that thing, my life would be okay. We all want things, whether it's a job or some new electronic gadget or some relationship. If I could just get that thing, but you actually get that thing, and then a few hours or days or weeks or months later, that thing no longer fulfills you like you thought it would, and then your sight goes to focus on something else. Well, if I just had that thing now. That would really do it. And then you get that thing. It's like, oh, I hate this thing. And you get another thing. Oh, if I had that. We just go thing, the thing, the thing, the thing. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. 
We all know this because this deep-rooted discontent sits in the human heart, and it does not go away. Cynthia Heimel wrote for this magazine called The Village Voice, and she points out that actors and actresses she knew who tried for so long to become famous and they finally actually made it, she writes this, when they actually got the deepest desire of their hearts, they became awful. They became unstable, angry, erratic, and manic. She says that it's worse than just becoming arrogant. She said they were unhappier than they used to be. She writes this, I pity celebrities. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. (laughs) But now their wrath is awful. They wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, make their lives bearable, was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness as happened, and they were still them. And they were still them. She says, the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then she writes this. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you the deepest, your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. She's not a believer. Okay, I'm just <laughs> Do you know what Jesus says to the paralyzed guy? He says, he says I'm not going to give you your deepest desire until that is no longer your deepest desire. The scriptures teach us that our deepest problem is every one of us is are building our identity upon something or someone besides Jesus. We're looking for something, whether it's to walk or a relationship or a situation to be our savior. And if you never get that thing, you're so angry and mad. Why didn't God give me this? I asked God for this. I prayed. I had faith and God never gave it to me. How dare God not give it to me? But if sometimes you do get that thing, you're even more empty and you're even more angry. Why did God give me this thing? Oh, Jesus says to the guy on the mat, I am the only savior that can save you. I am the only one that can really fulfill you. And if you fail me, I will still forgive you and I will still love you. Most of us are like this man. When we first have problems, we go to Jesus and we're not really going to Jesus for Jesus. We want Jesus to help us get us the things that we think will actually save us. We ask God, oh God, just give me enough strength to get over that hump. Just give me enough power to get that thing and I'll save myself. And it doesn't even occur to us that the problem we're looking into in the middle of ourselves is we're looking for something besides Jesus to be our Savior. And every time we do that, we end up more and more discontent. Almost every time we go to him, we are saying, this is my problem. And Jesus looks like the guy on the mat and he says, no, it is worse than that. It is worse than you can possibly imagine. It is not turning over a new leaf. It's not changing a few things. It's at the very center and the core of your heart and what you long for. That's the thing that has been screwing you up. And this is why I talked about vulnerability. Because it takes a very vulnerable person to lay their heart open before our Savior and say, You are right. This is my deepest issue. It's very hard to lay our vulnerabilities in front of one another and say, this is my real issue. I think the process by which Jesus heals and he restores us sometimes hurts because he's got to deal with the discontent that's in our heart and always feels threatening and painful. I love how Keller says it. He says, Jesus Christ is aggressive with his grace. He comes at you and pours his grace into you if you even give him the slightest openings. In fact, he actually creates his own openings. That's why Jesus looks at this guy and he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
because the scripture is teaching that faith here is a gift. The man's not here to find forgiveness. The man here because he wants to walk and, and get better. And Jesus comes after this guy. I think he sees the heart of the guy in this and then goes after him. Keller says, Jesus is so eager to receive us, help us, and to love us. He even takes inarticulate, fragmentary, imperfect expressions of need and dependence and puts his grace in. I think Jesus comes, he creates those openings. And this again proves that faith is a gift. And if faith is a gift, that means we don't get to judge others for not having as much faith as us. Because it's not a virtue, it's a gift. But it comes from a place, I think, where we get to vulnerability. That we say, Jesus, everything I am has to come from who you are. My sin is what is screwing me up. My own desires for wanting all these things is what keeps messing me up. And if you're someone who is struggling and you're like, oh, I want to believe, but I can't believe, stop looking in here. Stop trying to muster up enough faith so you feel it. Go to Jesus and say, help me believe. I think if you ask Jesus for faith, you'll find he's been after you all along. You didn't even know it. See, here, I think Jesus knows what this guy really needs. And he calls it out in front of everybody. And I think maybe in the midst of it, it helps most other people to see what their greatest need is too. Coming to the vulnerable place where we say, it is my own sin. So Jesus forgives him, and the scribes go a little nutty. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? See, they knew only God alone could forgive sins. And they're totally right. That's exactly right. What Jesus is claiming here when he looks at this guy is that if I'm going to forgive your sins, that means all of your sins were against me. The, the only person who could possibly say that to a human being, that everything you've ever done wrong is against me, is your creator, the person who made you. And so verse 5, he says, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? And that question that Jesus poses has, has just made theologians crazy for the last 2,000 years as they deal with it. Which is easier? Now, in this question, the verb say is a synonym for the word do. And so I think it means when Jesus says to the guy, take up your bed and walk, Jesus is affecting the healing. He is doing something so the guy can actually be healed and walk on. So I also think when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is also affecting the forgiveness. I think he is doing something, which means I think he is pointing directly to the cross. I think he is saying it will be infinitely harder to forgive sins because I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the savior of the world. Any person can look at someone and say, oh, take up your bed and walk, whether it works or not. But only the savior of the world will be able to say to a human being, all of your sins are forgiven. Jesus is pointing directly to the cross, and he says it's going to be much harder to forgive sins than it is to heal this person's body. One commentator says this. He says, it's at this spot that the shadow of the cross falls across the path of Jesus. We had this discussion in my gospel community last year about this. Someone asked the question, well, why does Jesus have to die for our sins based upon uh, these verses? I wrote a blog post about it. We put it up on the website. None of you read the website. I get it. So. But it's there if you ever want to read it. But uh, it's a good question. So well, I'm going I'm to answer that. Why, if Jesus here says your sins are forgiven, why couldn't he just do that and didn't have to go to the cross and die? Well, the short answer is that Jesus' forgiveness of this man is pointing to the crucifixion. All of human history, all of biblical history centers at the cross. I think right here, the authority that Jesus has to forgive sins, when he says, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is committing himself to death to make that happen. He commits himself to the cross again. 
In Genesis, after the first man sins, death is let loose in the world. We are separated from life. We are separated from God. We are separated from one another. And God comes in Genesis 3.15 and promises himself to rescue us. Sin equals death and separation. Blood atones for that sin. And you see this in the very first sacrifice when God slaughters an animal and he clothes Adam and Eve with that animal. He clothes and covers their shame. And I think we can sometimes gloss over this too easily, but it's devastating. Blood is spilled at the result and the cost of man's sin. And the fact that God made the sacrifice himself shows how important and necessary it was. Sin doesn't dwell in the presence of a holy God, and yet we are a people who our greatest problem is our sin. Because we keep thinking we know how to live our lives better than God does. And we keep screwing it up and sticking our middle finger in his face and running the other direction. And God says, that's your problem. You're like, ah, it's not my problem. I know what my problem is. And we keep running away from God all the time. This is sin. Sin doesn't dwell in the presence of God. So eventually this leads to the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, which will ultimately point to the final sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. The writer of the book of Hebrews sums up the entire Old Testament in Hebrews 9.22 by saying, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God provides himself, and he comes at the appointed time to be the one that dies for us in our place as our substitution. Our God does not just wink at sin and say, oh, it's no big deal. Kind of like when your kids go crazy in the grocery store. It's like, ah, they're just kids. Right? God doesn't just, just wink at stuff like that. God is holy and just and right and true, and God is consistent. If you just brush sin off, he would cease to be God. God defines the consequence of sin as death, and he follows through because his words are true. But God is also the one who rescues and redeems and saves. This is why blood, which is related to life, is required for the sin we commit. The problem is, we can never pay for our own sin because our own lives or blood are tainted because of our own sin. And what is taught throughout Scripture is clear. Either we die forever separated from God, or we trust in his provision of his goodness, of his righteousness, of his grace through his son who has died for us. Our death for his life. Our sin for his righteousness. Martin Luther, you know, the vulnerable guy on the toilet, he says that this is called the great exchange. The great exchange. And I think he might even come up with that while he was sitting there. The idea of our getting our life is rooted in the idea of sacrifice. Specifically, his sacrifice for us. There is a reason that we call this the good news, the gospel. It's the only hope we've ever had. Our God loved us enough to seek us and buy us and redeem us and call us to himself. We don't have to live in despair because of our sin and what he had to do. We get to live in great joy and hope because of what he has done. He has first loved us. We have a reason to live. We have a reason to live in great joy. We are not a dead people. We are called to be alive, more alive than anybody else in the entire world. But you know what we all need? The forgiveness of our sins. That's what we need. I think we have to be vulnerable enough to say what our true need really is. Jesus looks at this guy on the mat. He doesn't see this broken body. What he sees is a broken and fallen soul. So he says to the guy, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is not fulfilling this guy's deepest desire. He's fulfilling his deepest need, what he actually needs. And hopefully this becomes his friend's greatest desire because when you love Jesus, you want nothing more than your friends to come and be made right there. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Why? The power of the coming cross. The Apostle Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
And when we speak and talk about this idea of the cross, it's not just this thing that we say that, oh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. We don't just say that. It should bring a sense of wonderment and awe that our God did this to rescue us from our sin and our folly. So I have a couple questions for you. What is your greatest wish for your life? Is it that everything would go smoothly, you'd find comfort, you'd get everything you ever really wanted? Is that the greatest wish for your life? Or will you allow God to drill deep in your heart and make you vulnerable enough to where you would say that what you really want is new life? That you don't want your past to always have this hold over your future? That you want real redemption and real hope? Because this is what Jesus' authority does in our life. This is what we speak of, that the gospel can make all things new, even us. We all have something in our lives that we think is going to save us, that's going to make us feel better, that's going to do all the things that we want want to do. And this is what people have a problem with Christianity. It's exclusivity. Jesus says, I am the only way, period. It's just him, that Jesus alone can redeem and save. And people think that makes Jesus too hard. There's this great place in C.S. Lewis's autobiography where he writes this, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And that is something we must believe when Jesus drills deep into our hearts and makes us vulnerable before him. The hardness, the exclusivity, the authority of Jesus will be kinder than the softness of men. The things that Jesus does to show us, us, even for this guy in the midst of a crowd to show us our vulnerability, are things supposed to wake, wake us up and make us go deep? It's a kindness of his grace. The thing that really changes us is to see the convicting sight of how he has loved us and how he has sought us and how he has bought us and realizing that he says to us, you think you know what you really need, but you don't. Your sin is destroying you and it's destroying everyone around you. It is separating you and it is killing you. But I have died for you to redeem you and save you and call you home. This is what we must understand of what's going on in this particular section today. That Jesus is looking at this guy and he's saying, you think you know what your deepest need is, but you don't. And I think he could say the same thing to every single one of us in this room. I know he could say it to me. I'm always thinking my problem is this thing. I could probably name you a dozen right now. Uh, But Jesus was like, no, no, that's not your issue. This is your issue. And this is why day by day by day by day, I try and recenter my life in the place of understanding his redemption and his hope and his grace and the understanding of the cross and the resurrection. Because he is the one who has rescued and redeemed and restored and loved me. This is why we talk about communion every week. I mean, communion really should, for us, as people who believe in Jesus, be a place that's very vulnerable. It's a place where we are, we are open enough to, to realize in our hearts what has drawn us away from him. Our own arrogance, our own self-righteousness, our own understanding that we think we know the best way. And instead of surrendering and opening our lives and saying, Jesus, show me how you want me to live. That's what we do at communion. You, come up, you break that cracker like his body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. And then we get up from that place of communion and begin to walk and live in these new lives underneath his authority. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you guys uh, to, if you take communion, uh, there'll be some deacons in the back if you need prayer. Uh, if you're in a place today where you want to be vulnerable and you can't because you're so closed up and closed off, they'd love to pray for you about that. Uh, if, if you're in a, in a place where, where you want 
faith. You, you want to believe and you want someone to pray with you to ask Jesus to give you that faith to believe. They'd love to pray with you about that. If you have any prayer requests, they'd love to pray with you. But I think it's going to start with this understanding that we must be vulnerable enough to admit what our issue really is. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done, so we get up and actually worship that way. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. I saw donuts and muffins and cookies, and they're like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Uh, grab, something to, grab something to eat, meet some other people, and maybe start to go through some of those questions in the sermon notes with somebody else. Uh, some of those things may not be comfortable enough to talk in front of an entire group. Like, what... what do you think is your savior and your God? It's not Jesus. And, and what are you running after? And what's your true vulnerability? Some of those things you may not want to share in front of 20 people, but maybe one or two. And let someone begin to carry you like these guys carried this man to Jesus on this mat. Let people begin to help draw you to the place of the cross so that you and I would both understand what true vulnerability means and dealing with the issues that are so deep in our soul that we want to hide so often. Guys, our God is good. He is good. And I think we need to be a people that trust Him enough and His authority to live in that goodness so that we would be those who begin to show the rest of the world what true vulnerability looks like as we let Jesus deal with our issues and live in His grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, teach us how to be those who live underneath Your authority. Those who trust you enough to be able to bear our heart and our soul before you. That when you point out something in us, we don't just run away from it and cut you off. We are vulnerable enough to allow you to deal with it. Father, for those of us in this room who think we know what our issue is and we're so mistaken, I ask that you would point out to us, just like you did to this guy, what our issues really are. And you would teach us to begin to understand how we are to live and walk in the new life that you bring. We ask that you would drill deep into our souls and into our hearts to see our greatest need and then to lay that great need before you so that when we begin to live this life you call us into, we live lives full of joy. Not always happiness, but a deep abiding joy because you are the one that rescues and saves. And that you have loved us enough to seek us and restore us. But in that love, you point out our deepest need. Teach us to lay that need before you and to trust you and live in the great hope you provide. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.